Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. In our last episode, we talked to Jesse Higgins at Charlottesville Tomorrow about COVID-19 in our area. At that point, a couple days before Thanksgiving, Charlottesville was doing significantly better than the rest of the state. Charlottesville deserves a really big pat on the back for adopting these safety measures, owning them, and, and, and making them part of our culture. So that was good news. But we were concerned about how the holidays could drive those numbers up. Everyone that I've spoken to about this is extremely worried about Thanksgiving. Well, now we have some indications of how cases are growing following the Thanksgiving holiday, and those numbers don't look very good. But we also have some exciting news about the COVID-19 vaccine. And stay tuned for a conversation with Sunshine Mathon and Latasha Durrett from Piedmont Housing Alliance. Affordable housing was in very short supply before the pandemic and economic crisis. And they talk us through what the affordable housing landscape looks like here in Charlottesville after the year that we've had. On Monday, the UVA Staff Senate held a town hall, looking back on the fall semester and how things went at the university and UVA hospital. So today, we're going to hear a little bit from one of the speakers at that virtual event. Dr. Mitch Rosner is the chair of the Department of Medicine and UVA's COVID-19 advisor. I wanted to just give you a review of national, regional, and local epidemiology. What are we seeing here at UVA? What's our health district looking like? And then talk also a little bit, some things about vaccination, and then also give you some recommendations for staying healthy over the holidays. In terms of the epidemiology, this is no surprise to anybody who has been paying attention to the recent media. We're now experiencing about 200,000 new cases per day over Thanksgiving week. And following Thanksgiving week, we are seeing continued increases in those cases. That is seen throughout every region of the United States. The surge is really likely to do to four major factors. The cooler weather, people are more indoors, they're not social distancing as well. I think people are getting tired, so there's less lower compliance rates with the public health measures, especially wearing face coverings and limiting the size of congregations. We saw really increased travel during the holidays with increased risk, and we know we have a highly infectious virus. So this is a dynamic process. But the overall message is that cases continue to rise, and that's very, very concerning to all of us. Virginia is in much the same boat as the rest of the country. COVID-19 cases are rising. And like a couple weeks ago, our health district is still faring a little better than the rest of the state. However, cases have been rising steadily here as well. As we go and look at Virginia, you can see that in early October, now going through Thanksgiving week, and currently we're seeing cases rise throughout the state of Virginia. We're also beginning to see that daily deaths reported are beginning to increase as well. There's widespread activity of COVID throughout uh, Virginia. Here in uh, Albemarle County, we tend to have slightly lower cases than some of the surrounding counties. There are certain outbreaks and outbreaks now in the Stanton area down in Bland County in Southwest Virginia, where the case levels are very, very high. This is our UVA uh, hospital admission summary. And you can see that our weekly COVID admissions are going up. We have plenty of capacity in the hospital, but we are concerned that 
we are seeing more admissions. And most of these admissions are coming from our local community. It's awful timing for a rise in cases. Hanukkah started yesterday evening, and Christmas is two weeks from today. Many of us are eager to spend the holidays with our loved ones. But Rosner stressed that the most important thing people can do to limit the spread of COVID-19 is to avoid travel. Now, what about staying healthy? What recommendations can I give you as we enter really a time that's pretty vulnerable? We want to travel, we want to be with family members, and we're also experiencing a surge in cases. During this particular time in the COVID pandemic, we highly recommend, highly recommend avoiding any travel. If you are going to gather, these are some factors that can help you gather safely. Think about the community level of COVID-19. If there's high or increasing levels of COVID-19 cases in the gathering location, as well as in areas where attendees are coming from, that's going to increase the risk of infection and spread among attendees. Think about your exposure during travel, longer travel periods, higher risk. The location of the gathering, indoor gatherings, have much more risk than outdoor gatherings. Gatherings that last longer are going to pose greater risk. And the size of the holiday gathering really should be determined by how well you can socially distance. That ability to stay apart at least six feet, wear a mask and wash hands is critically important. We really uh, want you to think about staying home, staying healthy, and saving lives by staying home. Just like Dr. Rosner said, we're in a vulnerable time. COVID-19 has never been as prevalent in Virginia as it is right now. This week, there are nearly three times as many new cases per day as there were during the previous peaks in May, July, and August. However, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Dr. Rosner also talked about the university's plan for distributing the vaccine. Now, I just want to touch on the vaccination process and a little bit of an update here. Two vaccines have completed clinical trials. They're under review by the FDA. The Pfizer drug uh, a vaccine is under review December 10th. Both vaccines are novel. They're based upon new technologies that use a messenger RNA rather than a typical antigen. The CDC, the Virginia Department of Health, are working on plans for phased deployment. The earliest the vaccine may be distributed could be as early as December 15th but we're still waiting for word on that. However, we know that when the COVID-19 vaccine is authorized, vaccine in the early initial phase will be offered to both healthcare personnel as well as residents of long-term skilled nursing facilities. Too many uncertainties right now to predict when a particular group of person may receive the vaccine. Again, we know that healthcare personnel, workers in essential and critical industries, such as teachers, first responders, People at high risk for COVID-19 severe severe illnesses and the elderly are groups that are going to receive prioritization. Yesterday, the Food and Drug Administration approved Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for distribution. UVA Health has invited some of its employees who have contact with COVID-19 patients to be vaccinated starting on Tuesday, December 15th. The vaccinations will take place on the campus of UVA Hospital. As Dr. Rosner said, at this point, eligibility for the vaccine is determined by CDC guidelines. And as of now, the vaccine is not mandatory for any UVA employees, even those with direct contact with vulnerable patients. Vaccination is not mandatory. We hope that people will understand the benefit of getting vaccinated and the fact that it's really important to keep us all healthy. 
And we want to make that as easy as possible for people. As of now, the health center is still working out its vaccine distribution logistics. Yeah, we don't know the particular plans for distribution and how they'll be scaled out. We are actively planning on how to do this. We have to have freezers, for example, and make sure that we have the personnel, all the supplies to do that. And we're actively planning. And I think we're uh, in good position for all of that. Eventually, we'll all be able to get one of the COVID vaccines, either the approved Pfizer one or one of the others under review. So another big question is whether we should expect any out-of-pocket costs. Here's what Dr. Rosner had to say. The vaccine was really purchased by the U.S. government to a large extent, so it's available to all all people, um, so there won't be out-of-pocket expenses associated with it. For more information about COVID-19 safety and the state's plans for vaccine distribution, go to the Virginia Department of Health. Their website is vdh.virginia.gov. Additionally, you can go to our local health district's website by Googling Thomas Jefferson Health District. Dr. Mitch Rosner is the chair of the Department of Medicine and UVA's COVID-19 advisor. You can find more local information and details about UVA's COVID plans at returntogrounds.virginia.edu. We are here to provide information for you to make sure that you can take care of yourself and most importantly, that we all work as a community. I think we've seen how effective that can be here in our area, and I wish you all the best for a wonderful holiday. Thank you. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our next segment, we talk affordable housing with the folks at Piedmont Housing Alliance. My name is Sunshine Mathon. I'm the executive director at Piedmont Housing Alliance. Uh, And Piedmont Housing Alliance is a nonprofit affordable housing organization in the Charlottesville region, serving the city of Charlottesville and the surrounding five counties um, with a mission to create affordable housing opportunities and foster community through education, lending, and development. And y'all have a lot of various programs. Can you kind of take us through broadly what areas of affordable housing you work in? So we work in a number of different fields. There are two primary areas that we have had, uh, particularly over the last year, had had our, our primary focus. One is on the development of and management of affordable rental housing for clients and residents, you know, again, in Charlottesville and the surrounding region. And then additionally, we have a housing and financial counseling team that provides financial counseling services ranging from a client who might need just help improving their credit score all the way up to folks who might be wanting to be prepared to purchase a home for the first time. So we currently own and or manage um, a little over 700 units of affordable housing, uh, rental housing throughout the region, a couple hundred here in the city of Charlottesville, a few hundred in Albemarle County, um, and then we have uh, one property in in Nelson County as well. Um, About half of the portfolio We are serving seniors or folks with disabilities. And then the other half of the portfolio, roughly, uh, we're serving families who may or may not have children. So, for example, 
Um, one of the more well-known ones is Friendship Court in the heart of the city of Charlottesville um, with 150 apartments serving 150 families. And that is uh, reflective of the, the kind of folks that, that um, we serve you know, throughout the region as a whole. And a lot of affordable housing programs are linked to a person's income as compared to area median income. What are the typical income ranges of the folks you all work with? That is a complex question because there is a complex set of funding mechanisms which help us create affordable housing and maintain that. And then people's lives are complex. Their incomes are complex. And so it's difficult to answer that in simple terms, but generally speaking, we're serving households and families making anywhere from, say, you know, $5,000 a year up to $50,000 a year. And depending on the particular property and how it was financed at the beginning might determine how much the rent is for that family. In general, the goal is to make sure that residents and clients are not spending more than 30% of their annual income towards housing costs. That can be hard to find in Charlottesville. Um for a lot of people. It is extraordinarily difficult, um, and you may or may not be familiar, but the city itself commissioned uh, an analysis of its affordable housing need uh, about a year and a half ago now, or maybe two years ago, and it identified about a a little over 3,000 household gap, uh, affordability gap. And what that reflects is not just the number of people who are seeking homes, because we know we don't have 3,000 homeless families in the city. But what we do know is that there are a lot of folks who are paying far more for their rent than they should be. Um, they're paying far more than that 30% of their, of their income towards rental housing costs. And then there are a number of folks who are otherwise uh, housing instable, unstable. They might you know, might be paying too much. They might be on the, the verge of eviction because of that. They might be living with a family member and doubled up in an environment which is neither um, good for, for either family. Or it could be that they're living, you know, far outside of town uh, because they can't find anything close into town and then rely on uh, either, you know, pretty modest public transportation network that we have in the region uh, or maybe a car that is at risk for breaking down and so they might lose their job. And the general rule of thumb um, is that uh, a household spends somewhere between five dollars and $8,000 a year on an automobile. And that's an enormous uh, amount of money for folks who are making you know, between five dollars and $50,000 a year. So it's, it's, a, it's an inter, interconnected web of needs and resources. Which is why developments like y'all's um, at Friendship Court right in downtown Charlottesville are so essential. Can you kind of introduce us a little bit more to Friendship Court for people who aren't familiar? Yeah, Friendship Court is a couple of blocks south of the downtown mall. And whenever I talk about Friendship Court, I have to acknowledge the history, which is that there was a period of time similar to Vinegar Hill where uh, it was actually a, a vibrant uh, black community of black homeowners and business owners. And during the 50s and 60s, similar to Vinegar Hill, um, the city leadership at the time decided to, to destroy it, essentially. And Friendship Court was built in 1978 uh, thereafter. It's a dark history you know, you have to acknowledge that where it came from, at the same time, you also have to acknowledge um, that it, it's also been a place over the last 40 something years for families to raise their children. And 
Many families have you know beautiful and wonderful stories of camaraderie and friendship and family in those in the community where they supported each other and you know people have called it home for a long long time. This is true about affordable housing in general, but it's particularly true at a place like Friendship Court where there's a certain group of folks who are on fixed incomes typically and oftentimes that's seniors but not always. You know, you're on disability income, you're on uh, social security income, those sorts of incomes will never likely change. And so people need a safe and um, welcoming place that they can call home in perpetuity that they can afford. There are other folks for whom um, Friendship Court acts as a safety net in times of financial stress. You know, um, maybe a family gets divorced or somebody loses a job and having the capacity to live at Friendship Court and, and have their rent change with their income gives them a grounding to be able to kind of uh, sustain their family and not become homeless. Many folks who come into Friendship Court want to come in there, utilize that safety net for a period of time, and then ideally move on. But the, the struggle is that our community as a whole uh, has very few pathways for upward economic mobility. Um, and in fact, there was a, a New York Times article that came out three or four years ago now that highlighted Charlottesville as being in the bottom 3% nationwide for opportunities for upward economic mobility. So um, I've heard people say this before, you know, when you're born poor in Charlottesville, you die poor in Charlottesville. And that's a pretty brutal statement, um, but it's the reality for many families here. It's a duality. There's, there's positive and there's negative. It's been a home for 150 families um, in the heart of Charlottesville for, uh, for over 40 years now. What is the process like for people to get a place to live at Friendship Quarter at one of your other developments? So the process uh, is guided by fair housing law, and it's guided by the financing model that helped create it in the first place. So in the case of all of our properties, somebody, a family or an individual comes in, and the primary thing that, that we look at is their income to make sure that they can qualify for the subsidy that's in place at the property. And as I mentioned before, that's a complex process. Uh, but once we have that finalized, there is a brief background check and credit history check, just like in any sort of normal rental apartment application process. We do typically try to have uh, a more thoughtful and empathetic perspective on people's history, recognizing that people have blemishes on their, say, credit history report. We try to work with those families to try to figure out how to get them get them housed. So we go through that process of determining their income. Once we get through that, then typically they go on a waiting list. And the waiting list is there because the need is intense. Every affordable housing community, whether it's public housing, uh, Friendship Court, other communities that we operate, there is far more demand than there is availability. So then we go through that waiting list following fair housing rules and, and it's kind of basically it's a first come first serve basis. So you all are managing a big redevelopment project at Friendship Court. Um, what are the goals of that redevelopment? The redevelopment of Friendship Court is driven by resident aspirations, resident goals. So when it was built in 1978, it was built uh, by a private developer, but it had a HUD Section 8 contract that provided that, that rental subsidy. We've been able to renew that Section 8 subsidy contract every few years, and in 2018, we renewed that for another 20-year cycle. 
But in that process, we also uh, engaged with the residents. And this, the engagement began prior to my personal arrival, but it began about four or five years ago. And the residents have developed a plan about what they want to see for the redevelopment that is actually pretty extraordinary. There's a, a body of residents, eight residents who represent their community, who are elected by their neighbors to represent them through this process. And essentially, we have met at least monthly for the last four years as we build this plan and get and bring it towards fruition. So the resident goals are, are um, a few different ones. One is that as the redevelopment happens, they wanted to ensure there is zero displacement of current residents. That is made possible because uh, if you're familiar with the site on the eastern portion along 6th Street, there's an open green space. Um, and that we're going to build first in that open green space. And that will allow us to build there first. And then once that housing is built, then we can move a portion of the residents into those homes. And then once they move in, then a portion of the existing homes will be empty because those residents have moved. We can tear those buildings down and then build phase two and then sequence it accordingly through four phases overall. The other one of the other goals of the residents is to go um, is to increase the amount of affordable housing in the city as a whole. So currently there are 150 apartments on the site. By the time we're done with phase four, that will be in the ballpark of about 450 apartments. So it's a pretty significant increase. And the residents wanted to do that for a couple of reasons. One is, again, to increase the number of affordable housing units in the, in the community as a whole. But secondarily, um, back to what I was referencing earlier about being able to move kind of up and on, Right now, if somebody um, does increase their income, gets their, their a solid footing, and is ready to move on from Friendship Court, there are very few places they can actually afford in that sort of interim gap um, unless they move far outside of the city, disrupting their children's location at their schools and their job connection, et cetera, et cetera. So they wanted to have opportunities for moving up and out effectively on the, in the community itself uh, so that people can stay in, in and connected. And then another component of it from the resident's perspective is they wanted to have it actually be an income tiered community. And by that, I mean that they wanted to be able to move up and out, but like move into higher income units, thereby opening up those more deeply affordable units for other families who then need it at that point. So by the time we're done, about 150 will remain absolutely Section 8 as they currently are, replacing those one for one while adding a middle income tier which will be for families, say, serving uh, between twenty dollars and $50,000 a year. And then we'll have a tier three units, which are for families, say, between fifty dollars and $70,000 a year, and integrated throughout. So there's not going to be one building for this income group and one building for this income group. You will not be able to tell. It'll be uh, completely integrated throughout. So you've talked a little bit about the process of redevelopment. Where does the project stand now? How, how many years will it be before the whole thing is done? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and ideally, pre-COVID, we would have started construction actually in about May this year, uh, May 2020. Um, but COVID has had an impact on our ability to start construction, just like it has had an impact on many other sectors. Uh, but knock on wood, we think we have a plan for starting construction in mid to late January 2021. So just a, about a month or month and a half away is our goal. Because we have this zero displacement goal, we have to complete one phase of construction before we can begin the second phase. And generally speaking, it will be on a two-year cycle. So uh, we start construction in 2021. That will be completed in early 2023, roughly. 
and then residents will move in, then we'll start the next construction and then sequence it accordingly. So four phases, eight years total. Under different leadership, PHA was criticized a few years ago for contributing to gentrification in 10th and Page. What do you think PHA as an organization has learned from that time? And what are you all doing now to combat the forces of gentrification in Charlottesville? Gentrification, it's a relatively simple word, but it's a really complex concept, in part because it is driven on two fronts. It's driven in part because of the history of systemic Uh, racial discrimination and systems that have prevented, in particular, black communities from gaining wealth through home ownership and other mechanisms. And that's, there's ample documentation about the history at the city level, at the federal level, at the state level, within the real estate industry, about how all those things came to be. So that's one level of it. The other is, if there are, say, for example, black homeowners within an existing community that is beginning to experience gentrification, there is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, that gentrification potentially provides the opportunity for those homeowners to actually increase their wealth because the value of their homes are going up. On the other hand, the displacement and destruction of the community and the character and the sense of home in the community can be um, incredibly corrosive. The work that was done, and it was, you know, prior to my time, but the work that was done at the 10th and Page neighborhood was done in partnership with some residents there. And the goal was, uh, as I understand it, was a combination of trying to reroute the community and having a mixed income and mixed race community. And if it it had been doing its work uh, the way that I think it was at least envisioned by some, is that it should have been providing a pathway for homeowners, low-income homeowners, to accrue wealth. Um, But inevitably what happens, unless there are guardrails around that process, inevitably what happens is you have um, families who then do decide to move, who do take advantage of that increased equity and then sell. And in a context of uh, a neighborhood experiencing gentrification, oftentimes that sale then goes to a middle-income or higher-income white family, which then catalyzes further the gentrification process. There are models out there for setting up those sort of guardrails around uh, gentrification, and in some ways that's part of what we are going to be trying to do over the next few years. Um, We are in the process right now of, hopefully, knock on wood, we'll be merging with uh, the local community land trust entity. And the community land trust model is a mechanism for home ownership but then provides those guardrails to ensure that when homes get resold, they do get resold to home, uh, low-income homeowners and the, there is the wealth creation, but it retains the character of the neighborhood over the long run. Every system like that has pros and cons, um, and there are cons with the CLT model from some people's perspective as well, the community land trust model. But we are, as we look to the future, our work, I hope, will be looking at how to try to create wealth for low-income homeowners, particularly um, black homeowners in the community, and at the same time, trying to put in the place the guardrails that are necessary to keep that wealth uh, in the communities themselves as well. Thanks for taking the time to go through all that. So this has been a really crazy year, and I'd like to go through some of the things that we've all lived through and kind of talk about how they influenced your work, the work of creating and securing affordable housing here. So starting with COVID-19, how have the families you all served been impacted by the pandemic? 
families, I should say, and seniors and people with disabilities? Um, yeah, everyone, <laughs> everyone has been impacted and extend that to actually the, our staff as well. It's been a really, really hard year. Obviously, you know, we all know that um, when, when COVID basically shut down businesses nationwide, one of the things it did is it put in particular, put frontline workers and uh, workers in, say, the entertainment industry or, you know, working in restaurants or um, supporting students at UVA, um, a lot of those jobs were jobs held by people in the communities that we serve as well as others, low-income communities in general. So they, they have been most hard hit of everybody. It has been a really, really difficult year to pivot the work that we had historically been doing, trying to sustain that while also addressing a dramatic increase in need. Um, and need not just financial, but need uh, spiritual and psychological. It is, you know, it's been an isolating year. Uh, many of folks in our senior communities have really struggled with the sense of isolation. So a lot of our community management team has had to pivot from their traditional roles into almost social service roles, um, trying to support people. And also simultaneously, <clears throat> when they're struggling to pay rent, to make sure that our properties stay financially viable as well. It has been really, really difficult. I will say that the stop and go mechanisms that have come through either at the state level or at the federal level or even the local level have really been able to sustain the communities we serve for the last, you know, seven months, eight months, however long it's been. Extended benefits through unemployment program and increased benefits through unemployment. That was a significant impact for many folks. We had the local uh, Charlottesville area community foundation gather tremendous philanthropic resources to distribute not just to our communities, but uh, communities across um, the region. That has made a significant impact. We have done our own internal fundraising around an emergency resource fund, which we have helped um, hundreds of residents with, um, with small bits of money here and there to help cover their expenses. And then in the last couple of months, Federal resources funneled through the state in the what's called the rental mortgage and the RMRP. I forget the full acronym, what it stands for. But that program has played a critical role in sustaining folks and so that they don't fall behind, too far behind on their rent and uh, also making sure that the, the, the properties themselves stay whole. But it feels like every month we're on the edge of a cliff about, you know, is this resource going to go away? What resource is going gonna, is gonna to replace it? Uh, and we know, again, in January, a whole bunch of resources, particularly on the unemployment side, are going to disappear unless, you know, federal Congress takes action. So it's, it's, a, it's been a stop and go year uh, all the way across. But we have, you know, we have worked really, really hard. Our staff has worked really, really hard to sustain um, and support the residents, but it, it, it hasn't been a perfect process for sure. Yeah, I'm Tasha Durrett and I'm the communications director at Piedmont Housing Alliance. One thing Sunshine didn't really get into is sort of the pivot we had to make to focusing even more on food stability and getting uh, meals and whatnot out to residents. And I mean, we have Trader Joe's to thank for a lot of that and Blue Ridge Area Food Banks are partnerships that we already had in the works uh, for food have 
sort of come through and been amplified uh, through this and just presented more of a chance for us to focus on that area. And same for technology and trying to get people online, even just giving them the resources of knowing uh, how to access everything from the school systems. Uh, So we really pivoted and focused on sort of making sure everyone had resources and focused on, you know, technology that's available at our communities and also access to food. 2020 was also a huge election year. Um, You were talking about, you know, those stop and go things that have helped you all as an organization and the people that you work with survive this. Given the outcome of local, state, congressional elections, what do you all expect for the coming year in terms of support for affordable housing? I don't think I would use the word expect, (laughs) Um, but I will say that I'm reasonably optimistic um, as we as we move into 2021 that the um, the administration that's going to be in power is going it knows that the the challenges that low income households across the nation are facing require a holistic approach about how to address it on the affordable housing side on the healthcare side on food access across the spectrum it has to be it has to be done that way. There have been a number of bills, some connected to directly to COVID, but some that actually existed prior to COVID um, that were looking at how to um, catalyze and fund a dramatic increase in affordable housing production nationwide. Um, I hope, and that again, expect is too strong a word, I hope that some of that legislation comes back and actually starts to move forward. Um, there's a there's I think it could have a pretty significant impact if it does, uh, both in the in the development of affordable rental housing, but also in the catalyzing and affordable home ownership as well. We also saw you know large protests for racial justice this summer. What's something that you all learned from local racial justice advocates this summer? How did it impact your work and priorities? You know we had started our racial equity work prior to the intense activism that happened over the last six months or so. But at the same time, the work that activists have done both locally and nationally, I do think has changed the game. It has changed how far and how fast I think we as an organization can go. I think it also has changed how far and how fast other organizations will be expected to move. You know, that's public institutions like the police department, but it's also in the nonprofit sector. It's also in the funder sector. You know, those philanthropic organizations or individual donors. It had really has changed the narrative about what um, that essentially every every call to action I've seen on the funding, affordable housing, home ownership, um, all those aspects, every single call to action or opportunity now layers over it an aspect of expectation that racial equity is a primary lens of how you evaluate. And it really has made it commonplace and a clear expectation that racial equity is part of what you do, what we do. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard.